Nobody's gonna take my car, I'm gonna drive it to the ground. Nobody's gonna take my car, I'm gonna hit the speed of sound. Ooh, she's a killing machine. She got everything. Big bag tires, bananas, and everything. I like it. Well, I need it. Gotta feel it. Alright, fuck. What the fuck? Um, that was Highway Star. Uh, you were listening, you were just listening to Highway Star by Deep Purple. Um, they're gonna be playing at the uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater here uh, next week. Uh, no, this is not. Uh, no, it was like it's 1974. Um, welcome to Jet Bangers Ball. Uh, today on the show is John Lord still alive? Fuck, I don't know what. Um, today on the show we have uh, a filmmaker by the name of Styles White who I don't want to get too much into him in the intro because we covered a lot of fucking ground and it's like a it's like probably the longest episode of this show that I've done um and it was really interesting because he's I will say he's a director he's a writer and director of a film called Ouija which was a horror movie that came out what the fuck is that hold on oh oh that's <laughs> that's just teasing the dog with a squeaky toy um, hey Jess, hey Jess, Jess, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to record the podcast, Sorry. that's okay, <laughs> um, so anyways, he's, uh, he's a director of the movie Ouija, which is a horror, horror film that came out a few years ago, and then, and then, uh, and then they came out with the Ouija 2 origin story I think it's called which is kind of it's like kind of the prequel but we'll get in we'll get all that stuff gets explained but really nice guy and and, and I was I was so thankful that he came over and did the podcast with me um it it was cool and it was good that it was cool to have another filmmaker um especially one um that I wasn't friends with beforehand you know and 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 it was nice I reached out to him and he was uh gracious enough to come over here anyways We have sponsors this week. Um, I'm going to do... We have a bunch of people that are sponsoring the show now, uh, which is really nice, but I'm going to do two uh, this week just to get those out there, and then on the next... I'm going to do another one here soon, and the next one we'll get get the other guys in there. But first, I want to say thank you to GHS Strings. Um, GHS Strings is... I don't know if they know they're sponsoring the podcast. They're not really sponsoring the podcast. They're sponsoring me playing their guitar strings on my guitar. Um, and GHS, for whatever reason, you know when you're like a fucking... Not fucking. Uh, when, you're, when you're a kid, um, you have these like... Uh, you know, you make up these ideas about people or things that may be not true. For me, I don't know if this was true or not, or if it is true or not. When I was a kid, I used to always think that GHS, well, this is the thing that I thought was silly. I read an interview with Robert Smith of The Cure in like a Guitar World magazine or something like that. And he said something about like why he plays Fender guitars because Fender, um, Fender were like for like artists and like indie musicians and then Gibson were for like, you know, uh, asshole like rock stars, you know, uh, which I always thought was funny. 
Um, and then I always kind of like uh, found myself, I kind of felt like I was in the middle of that, you know, like I was like, oh, I want to be like, you know, the 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 Stooges are like a punk band or whatever, but like I also want to like play like fucking leads and like fucking you know. But then like you know, then I'm like, well, fucking uh, Ron Ashton is playing a Les Paul and uh, Steve Jones is playing a fucking Les Paul and Randy Rhodes is playing a Les Paul and then like all the bands that I didn't really give a shit were playing Stratocasters. Um, but then, now I'm like, you know, I'm into the, like, fucking modded strat thing now. It's like the, the super strat is, like, the killer shit. Like, the Jackson, uh, Jackson, obviously, you know, Charvel, like, all that kind of shit. Um, anyways, GHS Strings. Uh, I'm playing their strings now. God damn it, every time I do this, the fucking gardener. Um, white people problems, white people problems, white people problems. Um, god damn it, though, really? Um. I don't know if you can hear it. Uh, so GHS strings, I'm playing those now. I was playing Diodarios, and I like Diodarios. They sound fucking great. I mean, I, I don't know. If, if anyone tells you that they can tell the difference between the way his fucking string sounds, I, I can buy him a bridge or something like that. But um, I was playing the Diodarios on tour when we were in Europe, and my goal was to fucking... Every three shows, I would change the strings. Because I play, like, they have Floyd Rose on the guitar, so it's a pain in the fucking balls to change the strings. And so I was... My goal was every three shows, but I would break a fucking string every two and a half shows, like, in the middle of the show. So I'd have to change the strings anyways, but, like, breaking the string in the middle sucks because it kills the whole fucking vibe, right? We talked about... There's, like, you know, there's rules to, like, this shit. Even if you want to be... fucking punk rock or DIY or whatever you want to do. There's still rules to, like, entertaining people, and that's why a lot of these... God damn, the gardener. A lot of these bands, like, I just... Nothing personal against the music or whatever, or even... I just don't like it when people don't seem like they're trying. That's all I'm saying. So I'm trying to fucking put on a good show, and if I break a string, I really pissed off at myself because I feel like I'd let the audience down. I don't know if they care or not. Anyways, so I got the GHS strings and I've been fucking wailing on these things and they won't break. So I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say just because they gave them to me that like that makes them any better. I'm just saying that like I haven't been fucking busting strings like I was constantly. Again, 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 uh, so our other sponsor this week, god damn it, with the fucking leaf blower too, I thought they made those things illegal. Um, the other sponsor this week is Visla, uh, surf, I don't know what you call it, surf wear, surf stuff. Um, I've been using their wetsuits, wetsuit now for, oh, go to like jhsstrings.com or whatever, or just fucking go to Guitar Center or whatever, you, wherever you go. Or don't go to Guitar Center, go to, like, do you have a cool music shop that you go to? Go there. I'm, I'm looking at the strings right now, trying to see what the fucking website says, but it doesn't say anything. Uh, go to, like, the coolest, you know, go to the coolest, like, indie, you know, like, mom and pop, like, you know, like, pop-up guitar store, like, you know, crafts and stuff, and, like, anyways. Go to, like, whatever the coolest, nicest people are and buy the strings from them, from me, from me. Uh, God damn it. Uh, 
uh, I go to Future Music um, in Highland Park, and those guys have always been super cool, and that's who I go to to buy stuff. But now I don't have to because GHS sends me strings, and I play them until I'm silly. Until my fingers bleed, until my hands fall off, I'll just play these GHS strings. I don't know what GHS stands for. Uh, good, great, heavy strings. These are the guitar boomers, and I played 10 through 46, in case you were wondering. <laughs> I know you were. Anyways, uh, Vistless Surfwear wetsuits uh, clothing. Uh, I've been surfing for two years now, and I suck. Uh, I get out there and I just eat shit every time, um, but I'm getting better. Uh, and I, s the first year I surfed, I had an O'Neill wetsuit that I got off of Amazon. And the thing, it was fine, but it just fell apart. Like it, it, it looked like a shark tried to take my clothes off. Um, and now I surf a Visla wetsuit and it's awesome. And fucking. Uh, I've been surfing it, like, I've surfed way more now than I even did, like, a year ago, and this thing is super warm, and, like, and also it's, like, held itself up really fucking good, and it's, like, the, the Seven Seas wetsuit, like, for, they look cool, they look super cool, like, this is kind of, like, it's a little hip, you know, like, I see, like, the dudes that I see surfing when I see them rocking the, when I see, like, a Vistula wetsuit in the water, in the water, um, when I see a Vistula wetsuit in the water, I think of two things. Um, the guy probably has like a hybrid car and they like, you know, it's like, you know, like hot dude wetsuit kind of. So like, I, I don't know, for me, it's like, for me, uh, I feel like, uh, it's maybe like I should get like, a if they have, if they made one out of like, uh jean material that would probably be better for me um but uh it's just a hip they're like a hip brand and uh i don't feel hip enough to wear it but i do like the way that it fucking fits my body and um <laughs> i like that it does that that it's not ripped apart in a year that's my long way around that so visla website go to visla v-i-s-s-l-a dot com uh i'm gonna talk to them next week about maybe we can get like a fucking code or something to like get a discount because that's what podcasts do anyways i don't want to take up too much more of you guys time let's talk to styles white thanks for listening as always welcome to jet banger the ball i'm just trying to think it's interesting because i feel like we met on like twitter yeah yeah sure <laughs> and i thought the dog will be in here too um and i think i just uh recognized your name uh, somehow, either yeah. like in the credits of a film or something like that. Or yeah, it's kind of a name you would remember. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of other people with my name, so it'll, yeah. it'll pop out. Right. Whether you think you it's from Teen Wolf right. or me. Yeah, there's two of us. There's, so, there's two styles. Uh, is there a reason for that from your parents? or? Yeah, it was my mom's maiden name. Oh, okay. So then I got it as my first name. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I mean, being Jedediah, I fucking hate uh, getting asked about names. Right. So I didn't really want to ask you about the name. Yeah. But it definitely made me um, 
when I saw, I don't know, I think you just liked a tweet or something that right. we that we sent out or whatever, and then I just, like, I recognized your name somehow, so I looked you up, and then I saw the Ouija stuff. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I, 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 I like these movies. I should reach out to this guy, yeah. you know. Um, so, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know where to start, because since we haven't met, but, uh, I mean, we met the other night at the show for the first time, and we've only talked on Twitter, obviously. Right. And Twitter is such a weird, a weird medium. Um, I've been getting into, um, I've been getting really into cryptocurrency lately. Yeah. I have a friend that, I apologize for the heat in here now that we have to turn the fans no, this off. this feels but, good. Um, uh, I can, actually, I'm going to open the fucking window while we're here. Um, I have this buddy um, that I work with that, like, he had won a couple Bitcoin playing poker right. <laughs> like online poker like mm-hmm. 10 years ago uh-huh. and he didn't know what to do with them right so he just held on to them you know and then uh you know the price of this thing i don't know how much you know about this kind of stuff i me too i'm right. very new to it and this will loop around but uh and then the price shot up to like three thousand dollars per bitcoin right and he had like two of them uh, sitting in it. So it's like, almost like a stock. That, it is a stock. Yeah. yeah. They're just, it's just like the stock market. It's like the very beginning of the stock market with this sort of, uh, you know, digital currency. That's the prices are imagined on what people think they're worth or what they're projecting that they will be worth. Mm-hmm. But his shot up. And so he started telling me about it and then I got like kind of obsessed with it in a way that I get obsessed with things like guitars or whatever bands or, you know, and, uh, started playing the game and then the other day there was this this uh stock that they were announcing in china and i started tweeting that i was going to be live tweeting this stock in china this conference they were having in beijing at the microsoft headquarters (laughs) and just started getting all these people following me that are like just because you were talking about that one thing and they're searching it on Twitter you know they're searching this the, the name of the hashtag for ant it's called ant shares yeah. they just changed the name at the conference that was the big unveiling um, but uh, so then these people started following me and then they're like they're like t- uh, tweeting at me going like hey man any news like I heard this rumor and then I would just be like oh I'm super jet lagged right now chill out like I'll mm-hmm. tell you and then uh, and like then I would look at their like handles and it would be like cryptocurrency financial advisor in New South Wales and then he'd be like any news man and I'd just be like I don't know the Chinese food sucks here you know like just saying like my girlfriend the whole time just like stop fucking with these people you know yeah. like I just couldn't stop but I don't know I just I, I, I don't know what my point is there other than like it's well you're able to connect you're able to because I think I think I was watching YouTube videos. I was watching some video, and then maybe a video of your bands was in the margin. Sure. You know, so over there, and it was just the maybe just the thumbnail. Right. What's the video where the the you took the video of the guys doing the lip sync at the high school, like oh the scavenger video, right? Yeah. And I just. I sort of just even seeing the thumbnail, right. it, it reminded me of high school and something that could have been shot at, at my high school. And totally. So my eye just went over to it and maybe whatever band I was already watching 
was in the same vein as you guys or sure uh, and then yeah and then so YouTube Twitter it's all kind of rabbit hole I can just go down a yeah a, a winding path and I can find these connections and you do you sort of see people who are following other people and suddenly your your network is expanding and yeah. even if you're just randomly tweeting about like what you're saying cryptocurrency something something a little esoteric or whatever you'll suddenly find all the people that are that are yeah you know someone was someone was saying uh that the one of the very earliest applications when uh the world wide web was made public is it was uh, deadheads trading tapes right well, and okay, and so that's another fucking weird thing, and I can show you this thing later, but uh, I have, <laughs> I basically have a um, a binder that's full of CD, uh, what, yeah, I guess they're CDs, um, that are uh, flack files of almost every Grateful Dead show ever recorded. And I was working at a bar, and this homeless guy came in, and he he was trying to sell it, and I don't know where it came from. Right. And you know, I I'm a I'm into the dead. I'm not like a huge obsessed right. dude about it, but I have friends that are really obsessed about it, and they're like they're like, does it have this show? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, wow, you know. And you know, my goal with this thing, uh, I've I've given it to some people to like see what could happen with it, right. and. And the response has always been, uh, I don't like, I don't know that this exists. Like this never happened. This, this meeting never happened, you know, kind of thing, which I don't know if, that, if they're just fucking being more serious than they need to be about it. But my goal is to somehow find the original owner of these CDs wow. and give it back to him. Cause wherever the homeless guy got them from. It's not a good story. It, it came from somewhere. It came from some nefarious dealings I'd imagine, but I'm hoping that someday this can go back to the rifle owner because I feel like I feel like that's what any true Grateful Dead yeah. fan would do. Yeah. And there's probably some guy out there right now that's just like thinking about his lost shows and being like, I need a miracle, man. Well, he'll find it. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. You'll, you'll bring maybe it to can, him. Maybe he'll get it to this podcast or whatever. But that's funny because I wanted to ask you sort of like you know, how you found the band, but that totally makes sense because when I started looking at your Twitter account, I, I still didn't even know what the right terms are for these sure. things, but, um, you know, and seeing all these like early eighties, like horror right. film references yeah. and especially the book covers of, yeah. um, that I was like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. Cause this guy's into the same shit that I'm into, That's which right. is like, 80s yeah, and you can kind of figure that out on Twitter. You can just sort of look <clears throat> at what they're posting, and you know, within five six tweets, you can you can figure out that that's someone. Totally. You know, yeah, you'll enjoy you know when you're killing <laughs> a little time on your phone that that's someone who's not going to be annoying on your. If you <laughs> if you enjoy film director Styles White, you may enjoy zigzags. Like that's right. Yeah. Um, so let so I want to get into that. So like. Um, how did like where did where did you grow up then? Houston, Houston, Texas. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, Richard Linkletter. Uh, yeah, he he was at the. I went to uh, Robert E. Lee High School. Wow. 
Also, Is it still they, called Robert E. Lee High School? They changed it recently. <laughs> of course, yeah. For a while, it went from Robert E. Lee, then it was just called Lee. Yeah. And now they've named it after now a, it's Martin a, Luther te- King a teacher. Yeah. But Billy Gibbons went to my high school. Oh, okay, yeah. He's from Houston, too, of That's course. Right. Moving sidewalks. So that, that was kind of the, uh, the famous alum of, right. of my high school. But then down almost... Literally down the same street, a few miles away, was Lamar High School. I think that's where Richard okay. Linklater went. And uh, uh, who else is the fucking comedian from there? Um, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks is from right. Houston as well. That's what I, I. That's my where my Houston knowledge yeah. kind of begins and ends. But that's through that documentary. Um, so, were you? Did you know about Linklater then when you were in high school, or? Not. An, I mean, he's a little older yeah. than me, but you know, definitely when. Uh, slacker right. came out and you know my parents went to University of Texas so I also spent a lot of time in Austin right. growing up and you, when you watch slacker you definitely recognized sure. that world <laughs> yeah. you know at that time there were not a lot of movies that really represented present day culture in Texas or places like Houston or Austin so when you when you saw slacker it just it looked like the streets that you walked around on, that you you sure. at. You recognize those people. Um, so, uh, yeah, see, seeing his films and then Dazed and Confused was definitely felt like uh, the high school experience. That, totally. You know, that, that Houston uh, where it, it's, it's almost like the, the high school kids can't wait to get into the fraternity hazing and the, all that. They just want to start it right away. Right. So, you know, all, all of that was going down at our high school as well. How old are you? Uh, I just turned 48. Okay. Yeah, so I graduated in 87. Okay, so my yeah. girlfriend... Was kind of there in the prime 80 years. Well, see, it's per- you're perfect for that uh, that whole thing. because So my girlfriend is just turned 47. Yeah. And... Uh, so like Slacker, for instance, I, I'm, I'm 37, so I'm like 10 years younger than you guys, but... Slacker for me didn't resonate as much right. because I was just kind of like it's it's too Gen X for me. Yeah, I'm like the Gen Y guy or yeah. whatever. So for me, I was just kind of like I didn't get it. Where she like totally gets it. Absolutely. And uh, and then but Days and Confused I think is is definitely like right. There. That's just universal. Like it I is. think we were just talking about the other day. We've actually had uh, Richard Linkletter over to our house and. Uh, Nicky Cat, who I don't know if you remember him, which he's like the greaser guy in the movie, the asshole guy that gets in the fight with. Uh, but he's like a buddy of ours, and so we had those two guys over for dinner one time. Um, and uh, but uh, that movie, we were just talking about it. That one's kind of like it, it never gets old, and I feel like even kids today can watch that movie and, and really see something in it you know it, yeah, it's, it's almost it, like a perfect film yeah it is it's like a it's like a, an adventure yeah it all happens in one day and one night and you know that that feeling of the last day of school and totally being that age and yeah. not having a car yet or you know the older kids who have the cars younger kids are just on their bikes and on foot and they did a genius that that whole thing between the the different uh, ages is totally genius because i just remember that so much like going to like trying to go to like keggers or whatever as a kid and just be, being oh, yeah. the young kid and then and then later being like when I was graduating having the parties and then there'd always be like young kids there or whatever you know and just like you either like 
you either were cool to them or you were treated them like shit depending yeah. on who you were yeah, and it was just, just how you felt but yeah growing up in Houston uh, you know I think there were a couple of sort of in my era there were, there were a couple of defining moments no, well number one we had this real low budget dollar movie theater at the edge of the neighborhood so we could go see you know they'd normally get movies there maybe three weeks after three four weeks after their first run right so I saw everything right I could walk over there with my friends and we'd see every horror film I mean we'd just see every film right see seeing Rambo there, (laughs) American Werewolf in London, Friday the 13th, Part 3, Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, just, you know, they were great. And also sort of those low-budget theaters, they'd be packed. Yeah. You know, because it was a dollar to get in. Sure. Yeah. I I felt like I I, I got to really have some formative horror movie theatrical experiences where everybody was screaming and freaking out. Yeah. The high school girls would be there and their cluster of friends and they'd be screaming and yelling. So, you know, I, I remember, I think it was in, I think when I saw Friday the 13th Part 3. Is that the Corey Feldman one? No, that's like four or five. Okay. Three is the first one where he has the hockey mask. Oh, okay, okay. And it was in right. 3D. Because the first one, it's his mom. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then the second one... He had the bag over his head. Oh, okay. He was like bag head. <laughs> and then the third one, he got the hockey mask. And uh, and it was in 3D, so there were these really great coming at you effects. But I remember that one really in particular that it was it was like a jolt of energy through the crowd and everybody was yelping and screaming. And uh, I, think, I think that film in particular was sort of an early taste of... You know, you could you could make something almost felt more like a show where you could put something up on the screen and really have an audience. You, you could conduct them like a symphony and right. have them scream where you want, cover right. their eyes and everything like that. And, right. You know, there's all kinds of all kinds of little moments like who that. directed the third one? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, it was it was Cunningham who did the first. And, you know, first and second. I'll have to look. No, I'm gonna I'll look it up. Or yeah, whatever. I'm have to go Somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell someone right. to write it, write in, and tell us how dumb we are that we don't know the third. Right. Uh, did you? Uh, were you and your buddies like? Did you guys have any interest in making film, or did? Oh you, yeah. So, would, so were you guys making films at that time too? Or were you guys like fucking around? With yeah, you? videos. You right. know, one one friend had the big ass video camera with the giant right. recorded straight onto big half inch tape. Oh, wow. okay. It was on the it was like a saddlebag right. that you had to hang over your shoulder. Right. Um, and it had the battery charger and, and the, it would record on the video there. And yeah, we would basically go out in the woods and down at the ditches and stuff and shoot parody movie versions of right. you know Apocalypse Now or something <laughs> like that. You know. You'd shoot them over the course of the whole summer, and um, do you still have any of that stuff? Or I, I think I haven't seen footage of it in a long time. But uh, I was looking through some of my VHS tapes the other day. I, I've got to transfer a lot right. of that stuff. I'm right. sure the conditions getting worse and worse as it's sitting in my closet. But um, yeah, I, I should definitely digitize. I just feel like that. people more and more just love that there's you know with that oh, yeah. uh, with the Raiders of the Lost Ark one and 
you know, just that whole, I mean, and then just like the Stranger Things and just like the, the sort of like 80s nostalgia and stuff just to see. I mean, that's what that scavenger video is all about, right. too. Yeah. And, and that stuff's a little bit, uh, you know, earlier than when I was in high school. But like Jess, my girlfriend, was the one who found all that footage and cut it together. Yeah. And, you know, and it was like it was like stuff that was on YouTube that had like 19 views. Right. You know, at the time when she found it. And I think like. I mean, it's not funny, but it, I think, like, one of the dudes maybe died, and this was, like, this tribute to them, and so they, she, like, found all that stuff, but it's just, like, it's the same thing where it's just, like, you see the the quality of the video, you know? But that adds to the, uh, yeah. the nostalgia factor of Totally. It. Yeah. And it makes me think of, you know, one of my favorite things of all time is um, that movie, uh, American Movie, yeah. with Mark Borchardt and... My sure. shrink. Yeah. And the, the, I think they were shooting a lot of like eight millimeter stuff, but like all that footage of them as kids, you know, with the drinking vodka in the, in the cemetery or whatever, you know? Yeah. I, I saw that in, um, I think when it was playing at the new Beverly, uh-huh. saw it in, in the theater because yeah. I, I knew from the trailer that that was going to be my kind of, yeah. that my kind of movie. And, you know, it is it is interesting with horror films in particular is there is sort of an immediate feeling of we could go do something like that right now. Yeah. Like, you know, especially if you're seeing something like Friday the 13th where it's just a hockey mask and a machete. Sure. You go, we could go, we could go get a hockey mask. Yeah. And I think my dad has an old machete in the garage. We could shoot something like that right now. Right. Um, versus, and, and you know, you sort of learn quickly what makes something scarier, at least the mimicry of it. Right. You know, having someone in the background and someone has their back turned to them and they don't know they're standing there, just making things dark and sure. doing bad special effects with fake blood and, right. you know, bad chopped off hands or, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I think with uh, my friends and I, especially watching horror films is, you, you felt like we could just we could probably just go do that right here in this house when your parents are out of town this sure. weekend we could kind of you know get some fake blood and and try and maybe get a couple girls over here we do yeah, I mean we still do that I mean my friend Calvin is a film director and has done a couple features and stuff and but we've gone to Joshua Tree on a weekend with a, a yeah. an eight millimeter camera that we rented from like Echo Park Film Center or whatever mm-hmm. and then just took mushrooms and made. Right. I mean, they're fucking terrible, yeah. you know, but, but they're like, probably not that terrible. They're, yeah. Yeah, they're just fun, you know, like, and, and, and it's funny. It's just like, I mean, we're still doing it, but you know that. And when you're a kid, my version of that, when I was a kid was we would take, uh, like a cassette player and play like a Metallica song or, you know, Megadeth or somebody like that. And then we would have another cassette player and we would try to sing along to it and then record ourselves singing over the thing. And it was super low budget and super shitty sounding. But like, I remember I had a friend that moved away. And so my other friends and I just stayed up all night singing our favorite heavy metal songs on this thing and then sent the tape to him. (laughs) Which I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but when you guys were doing this stuff, did you, did you, think you were going to take it further or were you just having fun or you know maybe maybe a little of both yeah 
you know, also back then it was it was very there were no there weren't YouTube videos where you could watch process of how things were done. Totally. Or even even to get your hands on the equipment. I mean, that was a big reason why a lot of people used to go to film school, just because they had the cameras and the boom mics right. and, the, and the editing bays and things like that. Um, I, I definitely liked writing. I loved movies. Uh, and I wanted to get to California right. from Houston. So uh, I went to... Pepperdine University. Oh, okay, cool. You know, felt like get, 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 get to the beach. Yeah. Um, and they had some, I knew they had some uh, TV, radio, film classes, and, you know, a division. And and I also wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a DJ on college radio. Uh-huh. That was a, that was a, a must yeah. on my list. So in Houston, we had this really, uh, sort of infamous college radio station out of Rice University called KTRU. Uh-huh. Um, and I could actually pick it up at my house. So that's where I heard a lot of, you know, the first best kind of music that I'd ever been exposed to. And, it, you know, it was so, it was so accessible. You could, if you heard something that was great and they weren't back announcing for a while. I, I had their number written down on my desk, so I just call, I had a hotline. Yeah. I could just call up the DJ, and you, you know, you're just talking to college kids who yeah. are maybe a couple years older than you. Um, but I loved the sound of it, and uh, so when I got to Pepperdine, I definitely wanted to be, uh, you know, on the radio. They have a radio station in Pepperdine. Yeah. yeah. What's it, what's it, what's the call letters? Back then, it was KMBU. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. K Malibu. Okay. Um, yeah. Of course. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, just to just to get in there and get my hands on all those records and sure. be, and and, I, and especially when you're a freshman, they give you the shit shifts. But I I was willing to take any you know midnight to two, midnight to four. I would I would take anything. Yeah. Um, and then and so what were the bands that you were into back then? Like what were you listening to? What was your back main, then main sort of stuff? The main stuff was definitely big Love and Rockets fans. Yeah. Okay. Um, which, because, you know, it's interesting. So before I finished high school, uh, I, as a kid, I had never been a comic book reader. Right. And then in 86, it was sort of the perfect storm. It was Dark Knight, Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you, if you basically started with those two, mm-hmm. it would lead you into all these other... Right. Uh, titles and works and artists and and writers so like if you read Alan Moore's The Watchmen I think Uh Neil Gaiman does the introduction Uh and you go who's this Neil Gaiman guy and then you read Sandman or uh, or then Alan Moore did the introduction to Dark Knight right Um, and so you know you'd you'd be into Frank Miller and then you'd dig you'd dig back and find his Daredevil issues and things like that and uh, and so, like Love and Rockets were from the same town where Alan Moore is from, uh-huh. uh, Northampton. Right. In England. That's where my girlfriend's from, Northampton. Right. Yeah. So you so you'd just start making it was pre Twitter. You just make all these connections. You know, you would connect these dots. But what came first, though, the band or the comic? The book? comic book. Okay. The comic book, and I all think right. the the. Uh, well, and then that's that's based on. 
the guy from JPL, right? Like, or that's um, uh, what's the guy that Jack Parsons? Yeah, is that right. what is, is that? Could have, be could, well because I know that he. There goes the dog. Um, I know that there's some sort of connection. Hey, buddy, that's just another dog outside. Um, I know that there's some sort of connection. I don't know if this is picking it up on that interview or whatever. Um, there's some sort of connection with that title, Love and Rockets, with uh, Jack Parsons because he's basically jerking off while he's like launching rockets right. in the air, doing these black yeah. ma- magic. And then he killed himself <laughs> yeah. with a rocket explosion. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, that was yeah. I was just trying to I was trying to piece all those names together. But yeah, Lo- Love and Rockets and, and Bauhaus. Yeah. Um, uh, the Chameleons. Oh, the Chameleons UK. I love the Chameleons UK. Which you know is a band that a lot of people over here haven't haven't heard of. I love them. I saw them in Seattle. I want to say like fifteen years ago. Yeah, that uh, first reunion. Yeah, tour. yeah, the, yeah great. We saw them here at the at the Troubadour. Yeah. Uh, which is definitely definitely one of those bands you think I missed it. I'm not. I'm never going to get to see yeah. them. And so um, yeah, we we caught them on that first full reunion tour where it's all the original guys. Totally, yeah. Um, you know, so bands, bands like that and, uh, and then, you know, weirder stuff, uh, you know, that I would hear on the Rice University radio. You know, you just hear strange, strange stuff late at night. And, Are Bundle you know, Surfers from Houston or are they from Austin? I think, I think some, they're from Dallas. Oh, okay. Well, You're yeah, right. But yeah, yeah you def, you'd hear a lot of them. I mean, you know, but also back then, I didn't know I didn't know what bands were national or what bands were just sort of Texas right. local. Right. There, there, was, there was sort of no difference. One of my favorite records, uh, compilation records of all times, is, was a series called Bloodstains. Mm-hmm. And there's one, and they have like, there's a California one, there's a Midwest one, but there's a Texas one. And the Texas one is like the best yeah. fucking one. It's amazing. Yeah. Like some of the bands that uh, and and some of the backstories of the bands. There's a there's a band called um, Stickmen with Ray Guns, and they turned into a band called Bobby Socks. But the whole story of is kind of like kind of like the Gigi Allen kind of esque, but not not as disgusting, but just mm-hmm. kind of as weird, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I've always been really fascinated by the by the Texas bands like just texas is just such an extreme place so if you're if you're a punk rocker in the 80s in texas you you're you gotta be for you gotta sure. be committed for sure uh and regionally it's so big yeah there's an el paso sound there's a dallas sure you know north texas you know brownsville um there were so many different factions happening um but yeah, so so you got out to Malibu. You're so yep, started taking, doing radio stuff, taking film classes, doing you know TV production, and uh, it was a screenwriting class that I took that was really probably the most you know the biggest tipping point in in putting me on the path. So you know before I even got to college, even before I started taking the classes, I don't think I'd ever seen what a screenplay looked like. Sure. I'd yeah. done school plays and things like that. Yeah. I'd seen stage plays, but I'd never seen the format. Right. Uh, you know, obviously no such thing as PDFs and things that you could just go find oh, online. Yeah. So, uh, so the school library had a, 
had a few. I think one of them was even like an early draft of Blade Runner or something uh -huh. like that. So even just seeing the interior, exterior, day, night, and that the dialogue and character names were in the center, like all of that was was a revelation to me. Just the formatting made sense, and, and I understood instantly that, oh, this is how a, cr a film crew will look at a script mm -hmm. and know what to do and yeah. it, it gives everyone marching orders and, and sets a blueprint of, of how to make a how to make a movie. And then my screenwriting teacher um, is this guy named David Gerald, who's a famous science fiction writer. He's he's famous for uh, when he was still in college, he wrote the Trouble with Tribbles episode of Star Trek. Oh, yeah, Trek of course, yeah. And just submitted it. Yeah. Uh, cool. They, they took open submissions. <laughs> yeah. And he, he went on to, you know, write this most famous episode. Born this, pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Of this most famous uh, <laughs> TV show. So I think it was helpful for me to have a screenwriting professor who, you know, came from science fiction and genre yeah. background because those were the kinds of things that... Um, I really responded to, and he was super tough on us. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you wrote something that week that sucked, he'd, you'd get up there and read it, and you'd, he'd break you down and dig into it. So definitely got got me ready for the, the realities of, you know, doing it professionally. Uh, and then out of, out of school, I just started getting jobs. Yeah. You know, I wanted to stay out here, so it was just job jobs. I worked for... Uh, you know, I was an assistant for a producer. Uh -huh. I worked Did you ever come across like Roger Corman or anything like that? <sighs> Close. Uh, 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 um, Just because I was, uh, from what I know yeah. or heard, is is kind of like it's a weird kind of school for people to like who want to be directors or whatever, getting on the ground floor, especially with yeah. like horror and low budget and sort of stuff like that. And so I just just a, a guy I met it was sort of in the last days of the of the classic Roger Corman world. Uh, a guy I had met through a mutual friend was directing, uh, Jurassic Park was about to come out. Uh -huh. And so this guy I met was directing Carnosaur. Okay. Yeah. You know, cause Roger always right. is going to try to beat, uh, some big budget sure. version with his, with his lower budget version. Right. And I, I met this guy for lunch in Venice where Roger Corman had his, his studios, which was this old lumber yard in Venice. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm sure the property, whatever it is now, is worth millions and millions. Sure. But he had this old lumber yard that was the sound stages, the editing bays, and uh, and I got to see a little bit of Carnosaur on a on a flatbed oh, wow. um, editing bay and look at some footage and I remember Carnosaur I remember like the VHS of it or whatever yeah I mean it was big it was actually I think theatrically it was one of, maybe one of the biggest yeah. movies that they ever made that they put out because the interest for what was going to happen in Jurassic Park was so big um, but I, I was I was I got to glimpse a little bit of that um, but I ended up I ended up just sort of working uh, jobs and then you know I worked in a bookstore I worked for an event coordinator who would do uh, all the premiere parties for Warner Brothers right so back in the early 90s every movie got a big premiere yeah yeah and um, like I remember one night I worked at the premiere party for the movie Singles mm-hmm 
which was at the Park Plaza Hotel downtown. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, because I'm from Seattle, so that's a big, uh, you know, we love that, you know, just and, and, the idea of it. And you know. this, the premiere party for this movie was like grunge ground zero. Yeah. So. I know like weird characters yeah. that are in that movie that are just like weird yep. people in Seattle, you know. Well, at the party, they had Alice in Chains and Heart and Pearl Jam played live. Yeah. Nice. And I was there all day and got to see them load in. And, right. And, um, uh, I don't. Th- the The party did not go well. Uh, there were there were things. Um, the MTV was there. Yes. To, to tape it and make a special. That's the Pearl Jam where they're all drunk. Okay, right. I didn't realize that that was tied to singles. I thought yeah. that was just some MTV thing that they played, yeah. but like Eddie Vedder's all hammered or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That was it. Yeah. Okay, I, wow. I watched the whole thing <laughs> from about twenty feet away. It was pretty amazing. That's like my favorite thing I've ever seen of Pearl Jam. Yeah. Footage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, had, had a lot of just interesting experiences like that. And then I was living in Calabasas and, uh, a guy who lived across the hall from me was one of the supervisors at Stan Winston studio. Okay. And I just met him one day out at the, out at the mailboxes, uh, getting our mail and, you know, he was, he was working all the time. So I, I wouldn't see him a lot. And I finally introduced myself and we were talking and, uh, I was hanging out at his place and he had all these Frank Frazetta art books and yeah. Bernie Wrightson and I was like, oh, can I, can I borrow some of these and just check them out? And I mean, he had, he had everything. He had the hardcover editions and everything and uh, I was always so eager to get my hands on anything. So we just, we struck up a friendship and we were hanging out and um, uh, his name's Shane Mahan. Uh-huh. And, uh, and funny enough, he was actually the guy that sculpted the hockey mask in Friday the 13th <laughs> yeah. Part 3. Great. Like, he was the guy who made awesome. it. Awesome. And, and, you know, he was one of the main guys who sculpted the uh, the endoskeleton skull from the Terminator. Oh, wow. When he was 19 years old. Wow. Uh, so, obviously, I was a fan. Terminator was a, was a huge movie for me. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and the name Stan Winston was, was a name that I'd been seeing for years and, and all the, you know, some of the best movies that I'd, I'd ever seen. And after hanging out and being friends for about a year, they needed a, uh, they just, they had so much, I think after, it was right after Jurassic Park and suddenly if you were making special effects, you were super busy. Everybody wanted to, now that they could see how maybe some movies that they just could never figure out how the effects could get done, mm-hmm. once once they saw the full-size dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, not just the, you know, the live-action versions and the digital versions, right. um, suddenly everyone pulled these scripts out and you could, you could now make Starship Troopers. Right. You can make, uh, there was that movie Dragon Heart with a big talking dragon. Okay. They're like, oh, we know. Oh, yeah, with the, uh, like fucking Sean Connery. Yeah, doing the voice, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So, it, you know, it's like a, it was like or a there was dragons with uh, Matthew McConaughey or something, too, where he was fighting dragons. Like, I can't remember what that yeah, was. Like, oh, it, yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like, every, yeah. every movie that was. Well, I was going to ask you because when I was looking at your IMDb thing, it's funny because it's like, it's all like special effects, special effects, special right. effects, and then writer. Yeah. 
then director, then right. You know what I mean? Like right. it just went like you went all special effects, and then just you stopped doing the special effects, but to well, do right. the writing or whatever. But I was wondering how you got to start with that. Obviously, it's through this whole connection. So you know, I was at Stans for a little over eight years. Yeah, and I think. I think I worked on about 35 films when I was there. Yeah. Because there were some years... Were you, like, just assisting or learning how to do the molds or, like... No, I, mean, I, I was I was on the more management okay. side of things. Right. Uh, because suddenly there were just... Because those guys are, like... You kind of have yeah. to be an artist, you know, at like, yeah. Right. Right. You can't but just, they, like... But they need... Now that the, the phone was ringing right, at the time, right. they needed someone gotcha. who could pick up the phone and just manage the... Uh, the traffic right. of having all these overlapping movies, uh, sh- packing things up, shipping them off to other countries, right. uh, the coordination of all of that. They, uh, the guys I was working for, they needed to be out on the floor getting the stuff done, and you know, the phone's ringing off the sure, hook sure, back sure. in the offices. So I just started helping with all of that and um, got to know Stan really well. So if a new if a brand new script would come in, maybe uh, effects houses were going to start bidding on it. Uh, you know, a studio was going to green light it and uh-huh. make it. I would be one of the first people to read the script and with a highlighter and go through and go. That looks like an effect. And right. That's, that's going to need some kind of big animatronic puppet or whatever. Right. And then so I would uh, kind break, of break it down. Yeah, I would break it down yeah. and do a summary of what's involved, um, maybe the approach of how it could be done. But yeah, I was learning. I was learning all about the business, and I it w- what was great because I did want to eventually be a writer and a director. Is I was seeing scripts at a green light level. Mm-hmm. I was seeing the quality right that it took to get there. Yeah, yeah, and the amount of rewrites or whatever. Like, or you were seeing the. F- final product versus you know I know because I've seen yeah I've, and I've, the little bits of acting I've done or whatever and then my girlfriend Jess she, she's a screenwriter as well and it's just like it's just crazy how many things how long things take to get revised and yep. the amount of revisions that go in and then it gets touched by other people and so and why and especially once you're getting into pre-production and production why they're getting revised right uh, that's going to be too expensive so it was it was a right. real it was a great education I mean working for Stan really was my film school that right. was my graduate film school uh, and just you know, being there at being there at the very beginning, uh, seeing how a movie was going to come together, uh, we got to do some of the effects for the Sixth Sense. Right. And so when that script came through, obviously it was just a mind blower. Yeah. And and just the quality of the script, the the, the actual reading of it felt like a uh, like a literary read. Right. It was a good. It was a good piece of writing. Did M Night Shyamalan write that? Yeah. Script? Okay. He writes all of them. He writes all of them. Yep. That's funny. I was. Gonna, I have actually wrote down a question specifically for you because we were having this debate. My good friend Dave is a DP. Uh-huh. Jess is a screenwriter. I'm a former right. improv comedian, guitar player, sometimes commercial actor right. or whatever. So we have these, and they like to talk about film, and I kind of like sure. will chime in. But we were talking about this the other day. Should, and this really applies to you, should directors direct films that they wrote or is it better to write, is it better to direct a film that someone else wrote Mm 
in general? I mean, I guess it's a, it's always a case by case. Yeah, basis, I mean, obviously but. there there are directors who are not writers, yeah. but they're fantastic visualists. Yeah. Well, um, Jess's example was uh, 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 oh, the fucking guy that does like um, uh, all the Johnny Depp movies. Uh, um, Tim Burton. Tim Burton. Tim Burton. Yeah. yeah. She was saying like he shouldn't write the films. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> he should direct it. I don't know. I don't know what that what she meant exactly. Other than well, someone like Ridley Scott, right? Who I think is you know visually, I I I love his films and I can rewatch them over and over. And um, in fact, like this weekend, I just I felt like I needed to I needed to watch that. I think they called it the definitive or final director's cut of Blade Runner. Right. I, I I suddenly had this. This feeling that I hadn't seen it. Right. I saw the. I saw the. The in the early '90s there was a new, uncut version, but there's an even new definitive right. version where they cleaned up a couple things and. I'll be honest. I've never finished Blade Runner. Yeah. And I try. And I think I've always, because of the times I've watched it, it's like. I've been like on tour with a band or something and it's like two in the morning mm-hmm. and we've been drinking all yeah. night long and then everyone's going to sleep and someone will be like, and Blade Runner is one of those ones that everyone can just agree upon to like put yeah. on, but it's almost like meditative and it, it is just medita- kind of puts yeah. you to sleep. I feel like I really have to like be in the zone. You have to start it at 930. Yeah. I have to go yeah. to see it at a screening. Yeah. And, and they have them, I, I, we've, I know they have them all the time, I really want to go to one where I'm like, I get there at 7 and it's on like a crazy screen or it's in the Cinerama Dome or wherever it is, mm-hmm. you know, and, I, and I'm able to like really, you know, focus on it. Cause yeah. it oh, always, late at night. It's just, That's not going to work. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's amazing. But to, to answer your question, I mean, I think some, some directors are just, they're storytellers yeah. no matter what, and so if if it's the story that they came up with and they've written it, they're, they're really directing it from the inside right. out from the earliest, uh, spark of, of imagination or, you know, story idea that came to mind. Uh, and then, but then there is also something cool about getting a script that you just really, you, as a director, you feel like I, I want to be the one to, Interpret this right. and to and to direct this and bring this one out because uh, I I think I see what the writer is is doing here in right. this in this story and I get and, and now that I've directed we're we're having some opportunities to to do it again we're writing uh, something right now um, I co-write everything with my wife Juliet yeah. Snowden right and we're writing something right now that. Uh, I will direct as well. Right. And so um, would you take, okay. So for, I, that is super interesting to me too. Uh, would you, would you direct something that she wrote or vice versa? Or would you guys kind of just collaborate? Together? I mean, writing wise, we collaborate yeah. on everything. Right. There's, there's no, since day one, when we started, there's, there's nothing that we've written separately. Right. We brainstorm it together. We, outline it we throw scene ideas back and forth at each other and then when we start writing a draft we'll split up sections right Uh, i may take a 10 page section and she'll take a 10 page section we just start to you know we'll start with act one and 
we'll email each other, we'll start pasting it all together in one document, and then really going through it together and making it sound like one voice. So when it's done, when it's said and done, I'm really not able to go through it and feel like there's, oh, this is the part I wrote, and this is the part she wrote. It's, it's, it's It's a single voice running through. Where did you guys meet? Uh, we met out here. Yeah. She was uh, originally from Louisiana. Okay. And was going to USC film school. Where in Louisiana? Natchitoches. Okay, Natchitoches. Yes. Yes, I know. My, my family's from New Orleans, so I know, yeah. and I know where Natchitoches is. She too. was born in New Orleans. Okay. And grew up in Natchitoches. Yeah. And uh, was out here at USC film school. Right. Getting her MFA in screenwriting. And just met through mutual um, screenwriting friends out and about. Um, and we both, uh, were talking about music and we weren't talking about film. We were talking about music. Right. She had been a DJ in college. She liked the chameleons. Right. She was the only other person I met <laughs> that also liked the chameleons. Uh, and, and yeah, and that was kind of it. We That's just started funny. hanging out. But in terms of us writing together. Well, cause you're, you're back at your, are you still at the, the, uh, yep. special effects place when you meet her? Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I think I just started there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think the first movie I was working on at Stan's was uh, we were finishing up Interview with the Vampire. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I, I got to work on Young that. Kirsten which was, Yeah, which was really cool. And uh, this is funny. One of the very first assignments that I had on that movie, there's this effect where um, uh, Lestat shows up to... Is that Brad Pitt or is that Tom Cruise? That's Tom Cruise. Okay. Tom Cruise is playing Lestat. Okay. So he shows up uh, to Louis, who's being played by Brad Pitt, right. and Brad Pitt's all freaked out, and he pulls out a like a musket pistol, uh-huh. and he shoots at Lestat, and, and Lestat has his hand held up, and the, the big you know, bullet goes right through his hand, right. and then he holds it up and it heals back because he's got <laughs> vampire healing powers. Sure. So they wanted it to be this practical effect that they could put on the back of Tom Cruise's hand that uh-huh. would be like this blossomed opened, you know, exploded out um, bullet wound out of the back of his hand. So they wanted it to be a real thing, and they wanted some kind of reference of what that would look like. And so... They're like, well, what? I mean, what could be a simulation of something that looked like it was shot through a human hand? And somebody goes, you know, like a, a pig's foot is pretty close <laughs> yeah. to a. It's got bones and mud. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I went. I I had to go down to a carniceria, pick up pig's feet, and pick up some pig's feet. Yeah, and I put them in a bucket, and I called a uh, a gun range. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm working on a movie, and we're doing this effect, and it, it's, it's got to look like someone got shot through the hand. So if I come down there with some pig's feet, will mm-hmm. you put a gun up to them and shoot bullets through them? Yeah, I'm sure they so, said, hell yeah. <laughs> sure. Bring your, bring your pig <laughs> feet like, down. We're already it's, doing that right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so when you see that effect in the movie, that is, um, I contributed to that by... Uh, picking up pig's feet and yeah. taking them to a gun range. Um, but yeah, we, we met and just were hanging out and she was, I think the idea of writing together uh, basically just came from reading each other's stuff and giving each other ideas and notes. And right. then, then because you're hanging out 
and you're, you're talking about story ideas, um, and you just mutually start coming up with, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... The, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a cool story? And then right. she throws another idea on top of it, and suddenly you're creating something new uh, together. So she was working a day job. I had my day job. We wanted to, we wanted to be full-time screenwriters, and uh, we knew we needed... We hadn't written anything together yet. Right. So I had maybe finished a couple bad things on my own. Same with her. Uh, so we really committed to co-writing a script together, and then that script was going to be our calling card. Mm-hmm. We were going to use that and send it out to people and try to get people to read us and try to get an agent or a manager, sure. or just whatever. We had right, zero. Right. We had nothing. And we, at that time, I think, Scream had just come out and horror was coming back a little bit but mm-hmm. it was still it was more like teen horror right it, it, it was almost like the reset button it's Scream is like you're kind of in on the joke too you right know? like it's it's not like a straight up but it was is, which is the genius of it but it know? was awesome because yeah. it was almost like that's the moment that horror needed to yeah. kind of acknowledge everything that had come before right. but because people yeah. were getting too smart you know or yeah. about it you know and, right yeah and so to actually point out the cliches and the tropes and and still be scary within yeah. that world super scary like a mind blower um and because Wes had done uh although Nightmare on Elm Street is also pretty revolutionary, um, but he had he had come from sure, the making the making yeah those kinds of movies. So for him to be the one to right. to use his style and his look and then reinterpret it again, I thought I thought was really brilliant. But so we thought, well, we could write something scary because one of the things that I discovered when I was working at Stans, especially when I was, I don't know if I'd read. Six Sense before or after that maybe it was all around the same time because um, there were several there were several films we were all working on around the same time What Lies Beneath was one of them right. but the idea of what a script a scary script could feel like on the page um, you could definitely make it a scary read like mm-hmm. if an agent took it home over the weekend and was reading it at night the the goal was to freak them out when they were reading it to actually right. conjure up a scary feeling in, in the way that you, you put it on the page. So we thought let's let's write something scary. Uh, let's maybe age it a little up from the teen moment that they're having right now. Uh, and so we we came up, we had just gotten married and we and we'd gone through all these wedding rituals. Right. The the engagement and the rehearsal dinner and the meeting the parents and all this stuff. And so we thought, let's let's make a Rosemary's Baby-esque type movie, but instead of the sort of the um, stage of life moment of having a baby, it's a, a wedding. Getting, right. getting married, meeting someone in a whirlwind romance, getting married. And so we wrote that script, and that was, we got it around to a handful of people, and that was really the script that started everything we never sold that yeah. script but it it did what we wanted it to do it right. opened doors and got us connected with some people and then it was the uh it got sent out uh there was interest in it and people wanted to meet with us and everything like that but it never sold right so then 
you're you're told by your your representatives now. Uh, all right, we'll go write another one. Sure. And, and you think, God, that one took me a year, <laughs> and I gotta go. And you're working a day job and everything. So we took another year. We wrote a new script. Yeah. And that was the one. Uh, West Craven's company ended up buying that one. Is that Luigi? No, that was called The Waiting. Oh, The Waiting. Okay. And that one never got made either. Okay. But right. that that was we got paid. Right. We got into the Writers Guild. That really started us properly, and we quit our day jobs gotcha. off of selling that script. Gotcha. And to sell it to Wes yeah. of all people yeah. was huge for us. Yeah. I mean, that meant everything, and especially who he was in that moment of time and what he meant to the horror genre. Sure. For him to put his stamp of approval on us was yeah. just incredible. Um, it's so like our old neighbors were uh, his son, right? Jonathan, Jonathan Craven, yeah. and his wife, Rachel. Yep. Um, they lived two houses down from us, and I remember when I found out that that was... Yeah. West Craven was I like went and like shoved some short films yeah. in his <laughs> mailbox yeah. I was such a huge West Craven fan as oh, well, yeah. you know so it's just funny well and then so after after that just the, the last little piece of early history um, so I would say the other really uh, you know influential director for us was Sam Raimi yeah because um, he, he he was from this other side of the coin which was just an amazing um visualist sure. of his style and and how he was doing a lot of the little too like absolutely kind of and working within the constraints you know I, I think of it as like yeah like it's like the white stripes or something we're doing good time with like you know and it definitely remind especially if watching that first evil dead movie that is definitely the Hey, let's go shoot a horror film this weekend. Totally, but 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 it comes out. But awesome. showing it to you in a way where you <laughs> yeah. go, yeah, I when I shot my horror film with my friends in a weekend, it didn't look like right. this. It yeah. wasn't near this level. Yeah. Um, but Sam was someone who um, was a big inspiration for us, and there was this really great one night. I was flipping around cable, and there was this show called The Incredibly Strange Film Show. It was out of the UK. We always have one and fly this, in the house for some reason. Um, yeah, uh, it was this host, uh, Jonathan Ross. Okay. And I'll I'll show you the YouTube links um, okay. after this. I feel like I've seen it. But, but he yeah. would he would showcase um, Jackie Chan uh-huh. and Sam Raimi and John Waters and sure. uh, you know David Lynch and you know people at that time who had a really who were doing something really distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sam was one of the, the hour-long segments that he did. And, and so this special went all through Sam's career. And it showed a lot of the early 8mm stuff that they would shoot as goof-arounds. Because they were also huge uh, Three Stooges fans. Right. So it was that mix of Yeah, there's all that like, kind of slapstick with um, um, Bruce Campbell and yeah. the hand like, slapping him in the face. And, yeah. And all, and when you see the stuff that they were doing in college, right. you you totally get where all that was coming from. Right. And I I, I caught this this special on it just the right on some random cable channel one night, and I I just watched the whole thing. I caught it right as it was starting, and I watched the whole thing. It was like it was uh, like everything he was saying about how to make movies and just 
just going and doing it and uh, doing it with what you have and how to make things scary and whether to show show or not show um, and just the innovation of what they were doing with putting a, a camera on a long yeah door I love that running through totally, the woods yeah. and knocking down doors we talk about that all the time I love the, the the physicality of of what they were doing to try to get movement I love out the two the by camera. four just like knocking like pushing trees over yeah, as they right. run through yeah. you know like so it's like this giant monster that you can't the POV of some whatever it is brilliant. you know brilliant and it gave you a feeling watching those that if you were watching a bunch of other low budget horror at the time Evil Dead just stood sure. above everything else so after we sold The Waiting we got offered to do some rewrite work on a horror movie that Sam's new company was doing called Boogeyman okay and so we were literally getting to go from Wes Craven to totally. Sam Raimi awesome. and we we jumped at the chance. We were a little scared at first because it was like now we were professional right. writers had, yeah, and we didn't, do it. we didn't really know if we knew how to rewrite someone else's script or right. not. Um, and I'm glad we took it because they ended up making the movie and we got to go to New Zealand and watch him film and awesome. um, got to interact with Sam and his team and Rob Tappert, who's his longtime producer, who, uh, you know, has been there from, from the beginning. So that was really those, those two moments were, um, getting something set up with Wes and then being able to work with Sam. That was, uh, that was really the beginning of everything for us. Right. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that was like a Chris Farley answer. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, um, we, that, uh, we're kind of wrapping up here, but I wanted to just talk about a couple more things. And that is, mm-hmm. so then Ouija was like the first movie that you directed. That's right. Yeah. And you and Juliet wrote the movie together. Right. And you were able to direct it. Right. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of, I'm sure that that was a fucking <laughs> just story in itself, trying to convince them to let you direct it. Yeah, I, it you know they it was it was interesting because it all evolved pretty just naturally. They, yeah, they originally had a big budget version that they were going to do based around the idea of Ouija. Right, and they decided they didn't want to go forward with that, and right. and they'd been having success. Um, I think Universal had a new deal with the producer Jason Blum and they just had success off of uh, The Purge right. which was low budget you know three to five million dollars and they thought maybe we could do Ouija in that same style right. and containment and Juliet and I really just went in and talked about what's what was scary to us is that real teenagers would play with a Ouija board and you could unlock doors that you weren't supposed to open totally. sort of all that scary 70s mm-hmm. uh Leonard Nimoy in search of type uh, <laughs> stuff that would freak you out or true and, and so by the way when we were researching it and thinking about doing the project we didn't even know if Ouija boards were a thing that people cared about right. or were freaked out about anymore right and so we went on message boards and things like that and it was like oh yeah, people are still freaked out and they're still playing with them and right. they're doing all the things that you're told not to do with them. Right. So we, we felt like for a scary movie for teenagers, uh, it 
it still felt like a dare. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like something that uh, people were messing around with and trying to scare themselves or right. something actually that they believed happened. Right. Uh, and so we, we pitched it and just kept talking about the project and then got hired to write it. And if the script turned out okay, we would, they would pull the trigger and we would direct it. And all those steps just kept happening. Right. And we found ourselves on set making the movie and uh, making a Ouija board movie about <laughs> teenagers in a house with a Ouija board. So I didn't, I didn't try to overthink the process too much as right. it was going along. It just kept going along. And because I'd never directed before, I didn't know, like, I don't know, maybe this all just falls apart and you never, you never get to make the movie. But well, we, that's the majority of the stories right. is that that's the way it happens. So it sounds right. relatively painless yeah. compared to a lot of, you know. Well, I mean, it was definitely a process, yeah. but I think they're all processes. And, and I was reading the um, Sidney Lumet book, Making Movies, okay. which is really great because he takes you through all the stages of making the movies. And he has a part in one of the early chapters where he talks about, so what, what should your first film be? And he answers it by saying, it should just be whatever you're offered. Right. You got, because you get to make your first film and you'll learn so much by doing your first one. Right. And then, then that one's out of the way. And then you get to go do whatever, you know, you want to try to do next. So I'm, I'm excited about having another opportunity to direct again, because you do learn a lot. You learn a lot from your mistakes. You learn a lot from, I wish I could have done that better and different. You, you realize you shoot things that, that you spend a day on a whole scene or a sequence that never ends up in the movie. Of course. And it's yeah. cut out. And so the script we're writing now that I'm also going to direct, I'm trying to keep all those things in mind where, right. where every time I get to a scene, I, I really want to make sure that this goes in the movie. Well, that goes back to that question about writing and directing on the directing a film that you wrote too, because of my, what I took away from the conversation that I had with my girlfriend and my friend about it was just that like, if you wrote the script, you may be too personally attached to some of the some of the things that you wrote that maybe don't even don't necessarily work best for the film, but you want to get them in there. So, like you're saying, then to just make sure that uh, the things that you're writing are uh, important to the to the story of the film. Right, and and what I learned a lot from doing Ouija is we we had a pretty extensive test screening process. So we put an early cut of of the film up there and there was a lot that the audience was really responding to. And then there was sort of a moment toward the end of the film where they just, we just lost them. Uh We just lost the audience. And it was an interesting process to figure out why did we lose them? What, what specifically started to happen where they, they weren't into it. They weren't compelled by it. They weren't scared by it. And then you start changing things in the editing to improve on those things. And then you, you test it again and new things work that didn't work before. Mm-hmm. Just because you, you maybe pulled back a little bit or you dropped some lines. But what I learned in that is after a test screening and the audience really rejects something that you've sent. I mean, you may have written it and you may be convinced I have to shoot this. This has to be in the movie. Right. The second you see an audience turn on that scene, you're in the editing room the next day going, get that fucking thing out of there. Right. Like you, you can't wait to have that gone out of the movie. So you become very 
uh, unprecious right. about what you've written, what you've shot, what your favorite moments are. So um, I'm, I'm trying to write now with uh, that test screening audience uh-huh. in mind. Right. I, I have them in my mind as I'm actually projecting the, a, a visual version of, of this movie in my imagination. That's interesting because I've the I've done some like sci-fi channel movie stuff and I don't think I don't think there are any test audiences for those movies. They you just know, put them up. Yeah, they yeah. Just put them up. Um, and then what I want to ask you too is so then now they make a Ouija two, right? Uh, that's 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 supposed to be like a prequel, right? Now, you guys, they based this movie off of your story, right? Yeah, I mean, kind of, they they took some ideas, and then uh, Mike Flanagan, who directed that movie, um, and his writing partner, Jeff Howard, they they just sort of fleshed out uh, an expanded, yeah. newly imagined version of weird events from the past right. that could have helped, you know, influenced or led up to the present-day version that we did. Right. Um, you know, even when we were writing ours, we were... Th- because to me, the idea of a Ouija board in uh, the early 80s or the 70s feels like a scary place that I would want to be. And we even we even thought, should this be a, a period kind sure. of yeah. Ouija board story? But we thought for this first one, just to get the idea out there that the audience wanted to see something as close to the present day as possible, sure. uh, that they could really relate to it. And then if that one worked in any way, um, the studio and the producers then could kind of go in any direction that they wanted to. They could go to the past or right. um, other decades. I guess I just was wondering, as you know, as someone that doesn't understand how that works, it, it, yeah. like to me it almost feels like... Uh, like a cover song or something like that. And then and as far as like, if someone were to like cover another artist's song and then license that song to a commercial or something like mm-hmm. that, there's a Samsung commercial where it's a cover of a Pixie song. Sure. So for you guys, yeah. like how does it work with you guys as far as like when you wrote Ouija, you yeah. guys sold the script. Yeah, it was for, it was a, it was a work for hire. Right. So they just, okay. They, they, they own, the Ouija everything. Got it. Because it says, like, on IMDb, it says, like, right. based on characters created Sure, by. which is a Writer's Guild credit. Gotcha. You, you get if if ideas or characters carry over from one film to another, you get a... There's a character credit. Got but, it. yeah, we didn't, we didn't write the new one. And, you know, I think the idea is to be able to um, do different kinds of stories that are just based around... Ouija boards. Sure. I mean, if they do another one, it could just be it could it could be something not related to anything that the first two movies have done, which right. I would I would love to see. I would love to see um, something kind of a late seventies era weirdo Ouija yeah. board type movie. Totally. Um, yeah, but it, it's on on things like sequels and prequels. Those are all just sort of. Um, the, the studio and the producers it's, it's, it's all just based on a like well what should what should we do next with this idea or this right. you know now it's you know the first one did really well so obviously we could we can make another one and yeah. hopefully that one will do well and um, they uh, I hope they keep making them yeah I would no, love, it's, to, keep, it's, I would it's, love it's, to keep watching it's, <laughs> it's interesting because it's just like uh, I you know with the internet and stuff it's like the people 
you know, people get smarter all the time about yeah. kind of the inner workings of these sure. things. Yeah. And, you know, I've, we've done episodes on this show of like music supervision and how that mm-hmm. works. And I've had music supervisors on here and I've done music yeah. supervision for friends movies just because I had some experience and you know, that, that was a really confusing read for me was just like, I was like, ah, oh, so they wrote the movie, but then these guys made another version of it, you know, and it's just, it's an interesting, uh, process of how that works so before we go I do want to talk about um, uh, give give some uh, give some credit to your wife here because yes. um, you sent me that movie uh, Hollywood Hair right which is a documentary that she directed right um, which I watched and I loved it because it reminded me of it reminded me of like a lot of these documentaries that I've seen that uh, oh like a Maybe like a, not necessarily like less blank or something, but mm-hmm. uh, I really there's a documentary called "I Like Killing Flies." Mm-hmm. It's about a, a about a, a restaurant in New York, mm-hmm. and it's just a really simple story about this yeah. guy who and, and I don't know if you've seen it. I, it's, it's it's not online right now, which yeah. is really weird. But it's a great documentary about this guy who owns a small restaurant in New York, and he's just dedicated his whole life to this restaurant, but he's also very, um, specific about his rules and Mm -hmm. and how many, any, anyways, anyone who hasn't seen, I like killing flies should watch it. It's amazing. But this movie kind of reminded me of that. And then it's this sort of this like slice of life sort of thing. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the movie and I'll ask you some questions about it? I really liked it. Oh, thanks. We, um, we had, we went to, uh, it was part of the L.A. Film Festival back in the late 90s, and there was a panel on digital filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, which was in the early stages. And Juliet and I attended this panel, and both of us had been just wanting to make something. Right. We, just, we, we felt like we were going to die if we didn't just go start making anything, right. anything at all. And the, the panel was very inspiring because they were all talking about the ability now. And this is when this is before the new new digital sure. cameras. Um, but just that you could get uh, a, a simple rig uh, and attach a, a shotgun mic to the mount and right. put on some headphones and just go out into the streets and right. just go get something. Right. And when Juliet first moved here. She uh, didn't have a ton of money, and there was this book that she found called the L.A. Bargain Book, mm-hmm. and it told you where to get a cheap cup of coffee right. or a cheap haircut or whatever. Just basically right. where you can go around town to save money on clothes and food and haircuts and everything. And she and in the book it said, you know, best cheap place to get a haircut. It's a place called Hollywood Hair, right. and she goes, well, that's where I gotta go. And she she went to this place. And she knew instantly it's just filled with characters. Yeah. And, uh, it's on and Santa Monica Boulevard? It's on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, it's on Hollywood Boulevard. It's on okay. Hollywood, kind of 60, down. 6,000 block or in something? In like Thai Town. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, I was uh, trying to look around yeah. and try to remember where, right. figure out where it was by looking at it. That's right. There was a sizzler right across yeah. the okay. street. Okay. And, um, and she would sit in the chair and hear all these, just all these stories happening all around her. And, and Tony Morales, who uh, owned the shop and ran it, uh, just seemed to be the this focal point of all the activity in the neighborhood. So 
you know, homeless people and hustlers and right. prostitutes and sort of old character actors from back in the day. Right. Everyone was just at this place. Um, and Juliet thought, you know, one day I should just come back here and see if some of these people will talk to me on camera, tell me their stories. They can't wait. To and, get yeah. Here. And so, uh, after seeing this panel, Juliet said, we got to take the camera and we're going to go down and I'm going to talk to Tony and just see if he'll let us film here. Sure. And so we went down and, uh, he was happy to have us there. Some people did not want us there. Right. Some people had maybe just been out of jail mm. or were, you know, not having their regular meetings with their parole officers and right. didn't want to be seen on camera or whatever. Right. But we just started hanging out and we would go for about a year and a half. We would go pretty much every weekend and just hang out. And sometimes we would talk to people. Sometimes we wouldn't, but we got to the point where people knew us and would see us sitting there and hanging out and they didn't know when the camera was on or not on, but they had just sort of given us permission that, you know, if I'm here and I'm hanging out and I'm talking, you can film me or right. answer some questions. And we we had a lot of, we had, you know, dozens of hours of footage, but then the uh, the writing career started to take off. So mm -hmm. we just put all those tapes aside. Right. And then it was about, gosh, I guess four or five years ago at this point, Juliet said... I think I think if I don't do something with that footage right now, it's just never going to happen. It's never right. going to get done. And we met with a friend of ours who was an editor who had actually done a lot of reality TV and documentary type work. And they just sat down with the footage and started going through it and figuring out what the story really was. Right. I mean, we knew Tony was a key part of the story, but we didn't we didn't quite know the arc of the narrative or you know, what it was going to look like. So, I mean, Juliet and our editor, Brad Grossman, spent, you know, a good year or so editing and getting it down to about a, you know, a feature-length 60-minute documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and so we, I think there's some music rights that we really don't feel like we want to pay for or deal with right now, so we just put it on Vimeo for right. free. Right. If anyone's interested, they can just go on Vimeo and search for Hollywood Hair. Yeah. You can watch it for free. You can check it out. I'll put a link when we put this oh, up. Cool. I'll put a link to it or whatever. But yeah, if you just search Hollywood Hair, you'll find it on there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just it's one of those things. It, it reminded me of so many... It, how long has it been up on Vimeo, though? I think we put it up two, three years ago. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Um, it just reminds me of a lot of stuff that I watched like in the nineties yeah. and things that were like shown to me on tour or shown to me just sitting around friends house smoking mm -hmm. dope or whatever. And like, you know, back when we used to trade VHSs or, right. you know, it's like, it, it fits in really well with that. And it's funny. I, you shot it on like black and white digital or just yeah, high eight. Yeah. Okay. I shot it on a high eight yeah. camera because I, I got that camera cause it was one of the early, cameras where you could um you could change the frame rate down to 30 frames mm -hmm. per second instead of the 60 and it it got close to that 24 frame rate look it right. could kind of look like um 16 millimeter it also had a wide angle it, it had sort of a widescreen letterbox format that you could do in camera but because the shop was so cluttered there's yeah. so there's so much stuff in there 
we we played we may even sh- shot the first few times we went there in color mm-hmm. and it was like your eye didn't know what to focus on right. and then when we moved it to black and white you felt yourself really zooming in on the faces yeah. of whoever was talking and and uh all the stuff in the background almost became like production design so um and I just like the look I just like the look of it because it adds a timeless exactly. you're not even sure when it was shot totally um, yeah I, it definitely uh, the look of it was really intriguing to me because it does it almost has like it's got a sort of voyeuristic almost like CCTV kind of yeah. it's 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 interesting um, so congrats on that and, and yeah, yeah thanks that's it's, it's awesome and uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, is it playing any we, festivals here when soon? we first finished it uh, it played at a number of festivals. We yeah. played at the New Orleans Film Festival and Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival. Um, a few other places. We had a really big screening at uh, ArcLight Hollywood. Cool. That you know we got to do a big Q and A there and see it on a really big Great. screen at, at ArcLight. Uh, we we knew some people there who were very cool and, and helped us out with that. Um, and then that was really. You know, that's kind of the life of a documentary film. Right. Um, you put it online and, and people check it out over the years. But, right. uh, yeah, we, we had fun going going around and uh, taking, it to, taking it to festivals and just having people in theaters uh, be able to watch it. Well, it's a good, uh, good document of uh, a, a place and time in L.A. that I feel like is, just like everywhere else, is we're kind of slowly eroding. Oh, it's gone. Constantly. It's gone. In fact, some people, just one last quick thing, we were having a meeting on some movie project or something, and we were setting up a, we rarely do it, but the, the person wanted to have a lunch meeting. And they sent over some suggestions, and they're like, how about this really great Thai place on Hollywood Boulevard and whatever? Yeah. And they, they sent the address, yeah. and I thought, wow, that address seems familiar and I I Google mapped it to look at the street view yeah. and where Hollywood hair was yeah. it's now a hip valet parking right. Thai restaurant right. which back in when we were shooting it was the laundromat yeah, that's and the thing I was, I was, come on Fonzie the dog I was trying to look at the, hey 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 chill I was looking at that's the thing I was looking at uh, <laughs> during the film I was yeah. trying to I was Google mapping uh, based on that uh Laundromat there. Yeah. Yeah. The coin operated. But that's what it is now. So, Laundromat. yeah, I'm glad we were there to sort of capture it all because you're right. It's, yeah. it's gone. Well, I'm glad you did. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah. That was fun. It was great. Uh, yeah. Great hanging out. <laughs> for sure. All right. Thanks. All right, man. Thank you. They're not going to get that handshake online. <laughs>